Welcome to ProTax. Welcome, everyone. This is our podcast where we chat with CEOs and founders of some of the most interesting and influential asset management companies in the world. Because what we know from history is that if people have a little bit more money, if people have a little bit more financial security, a lot of the, the, the social tension and angers and wars and things that we've experienced in the past, a lot of those things go away. Today, we are here with Andrew Beer, founder and CEO of Dynamic Beta. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so first of all, um, I, w- I will start to, to ask you like, to introduce yourself a little bit, to tell us uh, a little bit about who is Andrew Beer and uh, what's your background and uh, how did you end up in the asset management industry? Well, it, it's uh, it's it's a very good it's a very good place to start. Um, so I, I attended Harvard College uh, as an undergraduate, and I studied European history. Um, and after I graduated, I decided to go into investment banking and worked for a gentleman named uh, Jim Wolfensen, who was the future head of the World Bank. And then I went back to Harvard for business school. And the real question at that time was whether I would follow my family into manufacturing, uh, whether I would go to Wall Street or become a professor. Uh, and I chose Wall Street. And you know, the exciting thing was that it was a it was a time of great innovation and change uh, in financial markets and the asset management industry. This was a period of the growth of derivatives. Uh, hedge funds were a cottage industry. Uh, some of the most important papers describing markets, like Fama's exploration of factors, had just been published. And so, you know, for me as as a as a kid in business school, it just seemed like an incredibly exciting place to go. And you know, when I went to look for a job, um, I, I met a hedge fund manager who gave me the, the the toughest interview of everyone. He he gave me a 450 page document, gave me 20 minutes to read it, and then peppered me with questions for an hour. And you know, I thought I thought wouldn't it be great to work with people like that who are that smart and intellectually rigorous and in trying to solve these complicated problems? And here I am, two and a half decades later, in the same industry. So I was I was very lucky. And uh, in terms of your of your background, uh, can you say like um, how do you describe yourself? Like in terms of I don't know. Um, I remember you mentioned that your family was very linked to the actual history of development. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, so so the most I mean so so my my mother's family started a company called Corning Glass in the mid nineteenth century. Um, and Corning is a really interesting company. It, it they you know, I grew up hearing stories about how the company had built light bulbs for Thomas Edison when he was doing his experiments, how they had invented uh, fiber optics, created revolutionary ceramics that coated the space shuttle, uh, made the first catalytic converters to reduce pollution from cars. So, you know, and then, you know, members of my family had always been involved in things outside of business. So, uh, you know, things like chairman of the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the Morgan Library. Um, uh, you know, serving on the board of, of the Harvard Corporation. And so I think I think I grew up with this idea that, that you know, I always wanted to do more. I found business very interesting, but I always wanted to do more than that. And so, you know, one of the first conversations about this was with this gentleman, Jim Wolfenson, very early in my career. And he said, he said, don't be the guy who waits until you're 55 to start doing things that are charitable for other people. Start now and build it over your career. And so I've tried to do that. So, so it, it must be nice to have like um, a family history so linked to the to the history of like the, the the human development, right? Do you try to? I mean, is the way you manage your your company and everything like influenced by this? 
Well, I think so. So, so what we do as a business, I mean, our 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 vision as a business is basically that, you know, as we particularly as we go into this decade, um, there are millions and millions of, and millions of investors around the world who would benefit from the diversification provided by hedge funds. Most of those investors cannot access hedge funds. Um, sometimes when people invest in hedge funds, somehow the hedge fund managers make more money than than, than everybody else. And so, you know, what we've been trying to do for over a decade is basically say, how do we bring the best of what hedge funds do, but bring it to millions and millions and millions of individual investors? Now, this is, you know, I served for years on on the board of UNICEF trying to deliver vaccines to, uh, to you know, or bed nets before the the, the rainy season. Um, this this isn't this doesn't help people in the same way. But but my view is that there have been some of the most important innovations in asset management have been ways for people to make incrementally more money over time to do better. Because what we know from history is that if people have a little bit more money, if people have a little bit more financial security, a lot of the the, the social tension and angers and wars and things that we've experienced in the past, a lot of those things go away. So so our idea of a business, again, is not that we can prevent that, but if we if you do better for people over time, it's good for society. And and so our business very much carries that 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 model in in our approach. So like coming back to history, like uh, thinking about financial history and what you said now, um, uh, what do you think we can learn from from the financial history, like from the last 20 years and how we could apply that to to the financial industry nowadays? So I think that's that's always a great question, and I think at some point when when my work slows down a little bit, uh, I've been asked to write a book um, on this subject. So I'll I'll give you a little bit of a highlight. Wow. <laughs> um, so so one is that the asset management industry is in constant change and evolution, um, and and what we do today, what you can do today, is completely different than what you could do 30 years ago. I mean, imagine if you want to find the price of a stock, you don't go buy a copy of the Wall Street Journal go through the C-section and you know try to find the individual stock and where it traded yesterday. You just pull it up on your phone. The access to information uh, relative to 20 or 30 years ago, it's, it's really, it's, I mean, it's completely changed the investment business and, and how you can invest today is completely different. So one of the, the most important thing about the past 20 years is that we've been a period of constant change and constant, constant evolution. The part that I'm most fascinated in, about from a historical perspective is how hard it is to kill bad ideas in the investment world. And and that bad ideas seem to stick around long after there should be plenty of evidence that they that they're not true. And one economist calls them zombie ideas. And and I think you know probably for investors um, uh, and allocators probably the most important is that we've realized there's now a great deal of evidence that we're not rational. Right? A lot of economics was built on this idea that you and I can sit and coldly analyze a new piece of information and that will tell us whether something is worth 100 or 102 or 98. And, and you know, we owe a great um, uh, uh, debt to thinkers like Daniel Kahneman and Amos Fersky and others who built a framework for us to understand that we are in fact, our brains are wired to make bad decisions in certain circumstances. And in order to be better as investors, we need to learn and understand that wiring um, in order to adapt to it. Um, so, so you know, it, it, it's there's a there's a long book that can be written about all of this, and I, I hope to have an opportunity to do it at some point over the next few years. 
And uh, and so also coming back to to the prior thing and and also thinking about how like obviously the financial industry has changed in the last 20 years and what you said how do you think nowadays the financial industry can help people if there is any way like to develop society in well, some... I think, yeah i think i mean i think i think the strange thing about today um when you look at 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 the you know is we've never had more wealth in the world um uh, i mean bill gates wrote a a wonderful uh year-end letter for his foundation maybe three or four years ago And, and he really provided some historical perspective. And in a number of photographs he showed, I think it was what Mexico City looked like 30 years ago versus what it looked like today. And a complete world of difference. So, so we've never had more wealth as a world. We've never had more access to education and technology and, and all of these extraordinary things. Um, and um, so where I think, I think you know, what we do know is that real horrible, wars and um and 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 you know terrible terrible things happen when we live in a world where people don't have money and are starving and are desperate and morals go out the, out, out the window behavior goes out the window and so you know i do think we have a structural problem where the wealth creation as great as it's been has been concentrated in a very small number of, of hands My hope is that these people who are now worth, you know, 20, 50, 100 billion dollars will do what the Rockefellers did. You know, we'll find ways to create universities and subsidize education. And, you know, and I, I found working at UNICEF, um, uh, working for UNICEF, that, you know, I found it very strange that somebody would spend, give 25 million dollars to Harvard to put their name on a building, but wouldn't give 25 million dollars to feed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of kids through their entire childhood and therefore give them an opportunity to live as healthy adults for the next 70 years as opposed to dealing with malnutrition and um, and um, uh, you know, uh, undeveloped brains and chronic health issues. Um, it just seems like such an obvious investment in in this world in the future and I hope more people adopt it. So do you think like in that sense that the financial industry somehow like I don't know, the same way that uh, it makes people wealthy, that wealth should kind of come back somehow to society so we can like just retroalimentate, like, uh, I don't know if that makes sense. Sure. Um, so like in terms of like kind of a cycle, right? Like what do you have if you have like a lot, like somehow give back to society one part so other people can also develop. You think that should be like, one part of the paper of like the financial industry should have like a kind of a bit of a role on that as well. So, so uh, the, the whole debate about whether business should be focused on just purely making money or whether it should be worried about other things like ESG um, is this is a, a exactly like the debate that happened with leverage buyouts in the late 1980s. And the argument was that leverage buyout firms were only focused on profits and they were therefore forgetting the roles, you know, the benefits to employees and to members of the community, etc. The leverage buyout guys were right. That that the goal that they absolutely transformed that what that what they brought to industry in the US basically set the standard. If you look at the average American corporation today, it is run so much better 
than the average American corporation in the 1970s or the earlier mid 1980s. People understand how to focus what they do and to you know, worry about the returns on invested capital and how to make sure they're doing things efficiently. And that's a credit to to people focused on singularly on how to maximize profits and make money. And, you know, the interesting debate right now is that we're so far removed from socialism in this country and that that people have lost perspective on how damaging it is to that instinct to make businesses better. And so I think I think in a in a you know in a rational world, businesses should focus on making money, and then people should find out find ways of um, and then as people make money from businesses, they should give it back to society. That's a much more efficient way to do it. In reality, it doesn't always happen that way. And you know, in our business, in the hedge fund industry, uh, I've written paper after paper about how sometimes it's literally like people take money outside and burn it in the fees that they pay. And but in those cases, again, going back to it, it's it's not their money. It's that they're representing, you know, they're working at a pension plan and 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 their job success is not tied to saving money for their clients and making a little bit more money for their clients over time. So these are these are very, very complicated, complicated issues. But I think going too far in one direction and expecting allocators to decide what's a good company and what, what's a bad company, my, my personal view is it's a bad idea. Okay, and uh, so going like uh, to a bit more personal thing, uh, someone told me that you are learning how to play piano. <laughs> Is that uh, correct? So, so my 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 friends who've known me for a long time will tell you that there are always three or four little projects that I have at this <laughs> point in time. So right now I am trying to learn to play the piano as well as a decent ten-year-old. Uh, my, my goals are always are always very modest. Uh, I'm, I have a newborn son who will be bilingual in Russian. I'm hoping to be able to speak Russian with him by the time he's speaking Russian. Uh, I'm trying to hold my breath for four minutes, uh, doing exercise to hold my breath for four minutes, and I'm trying to run a 400 meters in less than double the world record. Um, so, uh, so you know, I I, I think you know my I, I feel very lucky to be alive. My mother died too young. Uh, I lost a family member in the early stages of COVID, um, and I think the way um, as I'm now 54 years old, I think every day I just view time as very precious and. And and I, and I really enjoy learning things and trying new things. So, uh, piano is, is is on my list today. I think that's really interesting. Like to find something like kind of motivate you. And I I agree with you. Like after all the all the bad. I mean, I don't know. After the two years, like we have lived. Yeah. I think uh, thinking in a positive way. I kind of focus on things that we like and things that can make us happy. I think is that is very very important. Uh, so going to our next question, I have. Um, we are obviously getting to the, the end of the conversation, but I like to ask this question because I think it means something different for, for each person. And my first question would be like, uh, what does success mean to you? So it's 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 definitely about. So I, I think success for me is you know when I am on my deathbed looking back um, you know I, I want to feel like I have lived my life well that I have not lost uh, endless amounts of time doing things and wasting time on lots of things I, I, I hope to be proud of my business and the decisions that I've made um, and you know and that's that's um, uh, I've known tons and tons and tons of very very unhappy very wealthy people. Um, 
And it's not, you know, people view wealth as a singular goal. It's not. It's 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 life is much more complicated than that. Um, and so so, you know, success for me will be I, I, I'm very, very proud of the business that we built that, you know, I think that we have I think our business will be in a very important part of investing over the next five or 10 years uh, and that people who invest with us um, as they have been over the past five years will be very happy about the decision because when we built the business, it's not about trying to squeeze out every dollar from clients today. It's about the belief that if we do well for clients, they'll still be our clients in 10 years and still be our clients in 20 years. And 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 that long-term view um, is, 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 is not typical in, in, you know, particularly in the hedge fund industry where the goal is to make as much money as you can and then retire and to you know your your yacht in the Maldives and uh, then the second question um, it would be like if you had to give um, an advice to someone wanted to start a career in the finance industry what would that be what would you say to someone wanted to start in the financial industry so I think I think there are two things I think the most important thing is spend some time thinking about the financial industry and where it's going as opposed to where it is today Um, so there are some big trends out there. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of crypto, but it looks like crypto is going to be an important part of finance over the next 10 years. Um, if you develop skills in an area that's growing, you will have many more options than if you become the very best person, the most talented person to enter a field that is in steady decline. Um, so, you know, ESG may fall into that. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit critical of, of ESG. I think that's another one of these Kind of fads that people haven't really thought through um but i think so so think about where the business is going areas that are growing etfs are growing over mutual funds um democratization of investing in its various forms and i think i think the other thing is, is just is to try to stay flexible you have to balance between learning specific skill sets uh, but also having a broad enough perspective um and You know, very few people that I know decided at age 23 or 25 exactly what they wanted to do over the next 30 years and it's worked out. Rather, you have to make pivots along the way. And the way you can make pivots is by um, by by knowing more people, knowing different areas, um, being willing to take risks and move around. And, and you know, and, and ultimately I, I've seen very few people who, when they do move from one job to the next, um, end up being unhappy with that decision uh, sometime later. So so flexibility and look to the future. I mean, I think I think that is a very good advice. And uh, so, yeah, so we got to the end of the of the conversation. Uh, thank you so much for, for being here with us today, Andrew. It's been a pleasure having you here. I hope you have enjoyed the conversation and the questions. I, I have very much, and I, I look forward to doing it in person once the uh, once once the once pandemic. some problem <laughs> things are lifted. This is uh, this, you, this virus has gone on for long enough. You are invited to to visit uh, Valencia here uh, whenever you want, and and yeah, and yeah, and for the rest of the people uh, whoever is listening to us, for everyone listening, um, stay tuned and follow us on social media, and we will be back in two weeks. Wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you so much.